0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings 3, and we'll read that chapter. 2 Kings 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when it happened, when Ahab died... Excuse me, But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So king Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we go? And he answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days, and, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the the presence of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, I would not look at you nor even see you. But now bring me a musician." And it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, And shall cut down every good tree, and stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered, that suddenly water came by the way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning... And the sun was shining on the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites, so that they fled before them. And they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities and every, each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. But they left the stones of Kir-Heraseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. So far, the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you are probably thinking, there are a number of very difficult questions in this chapter. And the one that probably stands out the most is, why does this story end the way that it does? Uh, you can see this already in a number of chapters in Kings. They, they often end this way. They end in such a way as to simply leave us wondering, speechless, and wondering what is this supposed to mean? There are uh, questions that we have and we don't get explicit answers. We, we would love to have a short verse at the end that says, and this is the moral of the story, but we don't get such a verse. And this is a normal thing in the book of Kings. It's good to remember, uh, the book of Kings was written by prophets, and it wasn't written just to record the facts of history. In fact, they already had better history books for that purpose. But it was written to cause us to reflect on the things that God has done and the lessons that there are to learn from the history of Israel. And what those things teach us about God's character and about us ourselves as God's people. And so oftentimes the the lessons at the end of the chapter are not explicitly spelled out. And it's good for us to know this as we do our personal devotions. The text doesn't always tell us the lessons that we need to learn. Instead, we're meant to read, to reflect, to stop and ponder and with time and with prayer to learn. And this is good because in this way, the the authors of Kings actually help us to read our own history. The answers in our times too don't fall out of the sky. God doesn't declare from heaven what He thinks about the things that happen in our times either. He gives us His Word and He commands us to read and to meditate and to pray over these things, so that with time and with wisdom, we can begin to understand our chapter in history as well. Well, this chapter also has a few uh, issues with the text that we will uh, work through, but I trust that those will become clear enough as, as we get to them. I'll tell you right up front what this chapter highlighted for me it highlighted two important principles. On the one hand, the absolute majesty. Of God. In, in his total set apartness from sin, you see that in several instances in this chapter. In his faithfulness to his covenant with Je- Jehoshaphat, you see that as well. In his wisdom in confounding the Moabites. And at the same time, uh, so, so you see that on the one hand, God's absolute majesty. And at the same time, you also see the hideousness of sin. You can see it in the fact that God calls evil, evil. You can see it by the fact that God demands absolute and total repentance from Jehoram. You can see it by the fact that God wreaks havoc among the Moabite nations who refused to honor Him. And ultimately, at the end of the chapter, you can see it by the fact that God allows at certain times in history for sin to be put on display with all of its sinfulness And all of its ugliness. So that we would fear him and run from sin. And I'll explain how we see that in a moment. But first, let's see the majesty of God. You you can't learn from this chapter unless you can see the majesty of God in it. First, notice the distance that God keeps from sin. We can see that God refuses to call it anything else but what it is. And God refuses to have anything to do with it. You see that already in the first verses of the chapter. Jehoram is introduced in verse 1. He's the next oldest son of Ahab and Jezebel. So his older brother was the first to reign. That was Ahaziah. But he died already in in 2 Kings chapter 1. We only get one short chapter about his life. And it really just tells us the story of his death. So the oldest son of Ahab and Jezebel died, and now we have uh, Jehoram, the the next oldest brother. And his reign brings a really difficult question to the foreground. It's a question that uh, Americans have had to deal with in, in their most recent election. And the question is, what do you do with the lesser of two evils? You've all heard that phrase. I can see it already on On your faces, and this was the argument uh, last year. What do you do with the lesser of two evils? I can't help but imagine that there were many worshipers of God in the days of Jehoram who were glad to see Jehoram ascend to the throne. This man was, in name at least, committed to the worship of God. You can see that in his name, Jehoram. And it would have been a true breath of fresh air to see a king a king of the northern ten tribes actually ordering the pillars of Baal to be removed. It says so in, in verse uh, 2. He removed the pillars of Baal and he reinstated the true and exclusive worship of Yahweh. Compared to his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, Jehoram is a huge step in the right direction. At the same time, Jehoram's sins were the exact same sins as Jeroboam's. And Jeroboam was soundly condemned for instituting the the worship of God through the golden calves. It was wrong then, and it remained wrong a century later. Well, what we see in the opening verses of this chapter is that although God recognizes such a thing as the lesser of two evils, He still calls it by its name which is evil. It says, Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, though it wasn't like his father and mother. Well, brothers and sisters, what a blessing it is that we worship a God who does not change. What He calls evil in one century, He will always call evil in every other century. Uh, When God speaks, God speaks words of eternal truth. He holds no double standards. He does not bow down to sin and call it something else because he figures it's the best that he can hope for or expect. God's righteousness is absolutely unchanging. And so we see God already in the first verse holding Himself back far above evil. He will not excuse it no matter how much we might be inclined to do so. And we can see this also in his first dealings with, Je- with uh, King Jehoram. So first, our, our text tells us that Moab rebelled against Israel. That's the context for the events of this chapter. And we should know they had been subjection to Israel under King Amri, so that's Ahab's father, and then all through the reign of Ahab, and through the very short reign of uh, Ahab's son Ahaziah, and now in the reign of Jehoram, they decide to rebel and verse 4 tells us that they had to pay a tribute every year of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether this subjugation of Moab was a good thing or not. And it's, it's good that we, we notice that. Because, in fact, Israel had been specifically commanded not to do this kind of thing to Moab. Uh, they were given the land of Canaan. They were told to remove the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. But in, in Deuteronomy 2, verse 9, the Lord told Moses, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar, that's the, the name of that land, to the people of Lot for a possession. So they were specifically commanded not to try and do this to Moab. And that already, knowing that, casts a shadow over this entire episode. This whole battle is waged on a false or, or, or a sinful premise that we got to go get our tribute that Moab owes us, which Moab, in fact, did not in the eyes of God. Well, amazingly, King Jehoshaphat, a king who is called good in, in uh, Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat decided to join King Jehoram. And, and that's amazing because it's exactly the same mistake That King Jehoshaphat made with Jehoram's father, Ahab, all the way back in in 1 Kings 22. If you remember the the history of the kings, uh, King Ahab went to go to battle against the Arameans. And he called all of his false prophets and they all said, yes, this is a great idea, go out. And then uh, King Jehoshaphat was asked to join and he said, I will, but I want to hear from a prophet, a real prophet, not, not those folks. And uh, so he called Micaiah, and Micaiah specifically said, don't, you'll die in battle. And yet, King Jehoshaphat went. Uh, And it's interesting, because he used the exact same words in that episode, back in in 1 Kings 22. He says, I will go, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And, And in fact, this time is even more amazing because this time, Jehoshaphat doesn't even consult with a prophet of the Lord before going into battle. Uh, maybe he was afraid to ask Yahweh because of what had, ha- had happened last time. Or maybe he was afraid to cause a scene like he did with Ahab and Micaiah. Or maybe, maybe he suspected right from the outset, he would have if he knew the law of God, that this is not a battle that he should have been a part of. It happens sometimes, doesn't it, that we struggle over a decision uh, that we have to make, and yet we don't pray about it because we already know what God thinks. Just like a child who doesn't want to ask his parents for permission, and so he just goes and does it because he knows that they're going to say no. Sometimes we do this. We relate to God in this way. Even a good king like Jehoshaphat can make this mistake. We forget that God's guidance, God's permission is for our good. It's for our benefit. Well, in any case, Jehoshaphat either forgot or otherwise abandoned his principles. And he went off to do this. So from our perspective, this campaign is already off to a very bad start. It's based on false premises. And there's no con- consulting uh, with the Lord. Now the two kings take a route through the land of Edom. Uh, So, just so you got the geography, there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, then Moab in the north on on the other side of the Jordan, and Edom in the south. So the the two kings decide they're going to go through the land of Edom and then back up north uh, to Moab. And we're told that the king of Edom also joined them, and that's because Edom was subjected uh, to Judah. So this was a a puppet king, a a deputy king, who, who just basically obeyed the king of Judah's orders. And that explains then why they had access to the land of Edom to be able to go through there. Well, very quickly, the campaign turned to disaster. These three armies found themselves in the middle of the desert without any water. Uh, If you look at the map, they were actually marching along a stream bed. uh, And so, you can understand, they assumed that there was going to be water there, and it turns out uh, that there wasn't. Well, immediately... Jehoram, the king of Israel, despairs. He cries out, Alas, Yahweh has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to see in Jehoram the effect of a lack of relationship with the Lord God. Notice the difference between these two kings in the hour of trial. Jehoram immediately despairs. He concludes... God must hate me. God must just be against me. That's why God would give me these trials. Maybe you've met someone like this. They don't pray to God. They don't worship God. They don't know God. And when the hour of trial comes, they conclude, God must just hate me. God must just be cruel to me. Well, Jehoshaphat, is a very different reaction, isn't it? He turns to God. In the hour of trial, he said, is there not a prophet of the Lord by whom we may inquire? He turns to the God that he knew. The God that he had relationship with. And he turns and prays to that God. Even though he should have done that really right from the beginning of the campaign, at least he finally does so now. He turns to God because he knows his God. Well, the servants of the king of Israel tell him that there is uh, one prophet, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, they say, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's some, obviously some colloquial expression. Remember, of course, they didn't have taps, like sinks, that we can wash our hands with. You'd have to have a, a very close friend pouring water over your hands, and then you'd do the same for them. And so it's a way of saying these two people were really tight. Uh, he was uh, very close to Elijah. Uh, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and, and the king of Edom all go down to Elisha. But once again, we're confronted with God's absolute refusal to have anything to do with evil. So not only does he call evil by its name evil, in verse uh, 1 and 2, but his memory also goes back a long ways, and he refuses to accept anything less than absolute and total repentance. See, Elisha knew the king of Israel was only coming to him now because he needed him, Not because he had repented of the sins that he and his parents had initiated. It's true, he he may have removed the pillar of Baal, but there's no mention at all of restoring the land of Naboth. There's no public show of repentance for the sins that he and his father had committed. And there he is still worshiping the golden calves of Jeroboam. He felt God should be perfectly happy with a compromise because that's that's far more than God even uh, deserves to expect. Well, we hear every week, and we heard it also this morning as we read the law, that God punishes the sins of the, or the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And one of the reasons for this is because the children learn and imitate and inherit the sins of their fathers. And it often happens down to the third and the fourth generation. In Jehoram's case, he may not have been as bad as his father and mother, but there was no repentance. No tearing of his clothes, no sackcloth and ashes, no restitution of stolen land. It was, at best, a very half-hearted repentance. He figured, if I just turn around and start doing a few things right, I don't even need to worry about the sins of the past. God has to forgive those. Well, if we think that God should have been satisfied with what he could get from Jehoram, then we don't know our God His hatred for sin runs far, far deeper than we understand, and his memory goes back a long ways. So when Jehoram sent for Elisha, the word of God to him was, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, or the prophets of your mother. Now Jehoram protests this, he says, no, 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 it's the Lord, I know it's the Lord who sold us into the hand of Moab. Now, we have no way of knowing how sincere Jehoram was in this uh, confession. Uh, did he really believe that it was the Lord, or was he really just trying to butter up the prophet to get the sort of response that he wanted? We, we cannot uh, say. But in any case, repentance that comes without confession is no repentance at all. Repentance that comes without acknowledging how far one has fallen from God's grace and how how deserving one is of God's judgment, if that's not there, it's not repentance. See, Jehoram apparently believed that if he just started saying and doing the right things now, then he could just leave the past in the past. But that's not how it works. True repentance of necessity has to involve confession of sin. True repentance recognizes that we are deserving of of God's judgments. None of that is evident in Jehoram's confession and we can see that God rejects that kind of repentance because that kind of repentance is no repentance at all. The son of Ahab had no idea how far he and his father had fallen from God's grace. And so Elisha says in verse 14, as the Lord of hosts lives, If it were not that I had regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor even see you. It's a very heavy word from the Lord God, but it is a reminder, isn't it, of who our God is. He detests sin to a degree that we cannot even begin to understand. And He refuses to accept anything less than true and total repentance. Well, in that word in in verse 14 we do see a note of God's grace. And it's a note that we need to keep in mind. There is one way that undeserving sinners can find God's grace. And that is by being counted together with the son of David. See, it was for David's sake that the Lord had regard for Jehoshaphat. Jehoram and the entire nation of, of Israel, the northern ten tribes, deserve to be cast away from God's grace and left to die there in the desert of Edom. There was a mountain of sins to which they had to give account, uh, for, for which they had to give account to God. And they deserved no better than to be left to die in the desert. And even their, their repentance was not worthy of God's attention. And yet we see that they found God's grace, didn't they? And they found it because of God's faithfulness to Jehoshaphat, because of God's commitment to His own promises that He had made to David. Well, understand this, brothers and sisters. The same is true for all of us. All of us are worthy of God's condemnation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of our fathers. And we are Gentiles, are we not? When we trace our line back, our line goes back to a people that did not know God, that did not worship God, and whose land was filled With iniquity. We too do not deserve to be received by God. And the only way that we can be forgiven is by being counted together with the Son of David. And so understand this then, already here more than a thousand years before Christ, we see how God's grace works and how salvation and life are found in one place and only one place, in the Son of David to whom God is faithful, for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his own promises and commitments. None of us are worthy of God's grace, and none of us would ever receive it apart from Christ. And that's what we want to see in our third point uh, with respect to Moab. Whether Israel should have been at war with Moab or not is really not the point here. God used Israel to bring his judgment on Moab. And we see that that judgment that comes on Moab comes by the same means that salvation comes to Israel. It's just like the Gospel. It's a two-edged sword, the New Testament says, bringing uh, salvation to some and in the same movement, bringing judgment to others. Just like the water of the flood carried Noah and his family to safety while drowning the rest of the world. Or just like the, the Red Sea delivered Israel, but drowned Pharaoh and all his hosts. Here, too, life and judgment come together. Uh, the water that comes brings life to the people of Israel and death to the people of Moab. And so Elisha calls for a musician. Uh, now, it's not exactly clear what role that, that uh, music has to play here, uh, but evidently, uh, it, was, it was a means, a gift by which the prophet's heart and mind would be called up to God. And if you think that's weird, it, it's really not that different from the way that we use music today. It's why we don't just recite the words of the Psalms, but we, we sing them. Because music has a special power to, to draw our hearts and minds up uh, to God. And so the, the musician had a similar effect with the prophet uh, Elisha. So the musician played... And it says, the hand of God came upon Elisha and he spoke. And uh, here the the New King James actually does a good job with with the translation. Most other translations uh, take it as a prophecy saying that this dry stream bed will be filled with pools. But it is as the New King James uh, says. It's a command that Elisha gives, uh, make this dry stream bed full of, of ditches. You could also translate that as pits. So basically dig, something that's, that's dug. Uh, and so he commands them to, to dig all these pits and ditches. And, and the idea would have been, uh, for the Israelites, uh, it would have been to trap the water. So water was going to come rushing down this stream bed. And if they didn't dig pits, the water would just rush on through. And they would still end up dying of thirst because there would be no water left. And so the command is to go dig pits, to trap uh, that water. What the Israelites didn't know, and, and what only God could have planned, is that those same pits, which became pools of water, would also serve to bring destruction to the Moabites. At sunrise, remember the Moabites are up north, Edom's down south. At sunrise, the, the Moabites would have looked southwards towards Edom, where the Israelites were all encamped, and they expected it to be dry there. Uh, there was no reason to expect water. They knew their land. They knew that this was a dry place at this time. Uh, and so the sun, would rise, rising in the east, would have reflected a red glow off of all these hundreds of thousands of little pits and ditches. Uh, and so don't think then of the whole land being filled with water. Obviously, then the Israelites would have drowned if that was the case. But think instead of hundreds of thousands of little pits and ditches filled with red water. Well, from the Moabites' perspective, only one thing could have explained that sudden uh, transformation of that land. They figured these three kings, which were a very unlikely alliance in the first place, had turned on each other, and all of them killed each other. And so it is that the, the godless, idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing people of Moab found their destruction by the same means that God used to deliver the Israelites. And we see in this not only the righteousness of God, which we want to see in in executing judgment on a people whose time had come, but also the surpassing wisdom and cunning of God by which He confounds the Moabites. He catches the crafty, in in their craftiness. As Psalm 18 says, With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself torturous. Whether or not Israel should have been at war then with Moab is not the point. God used them as a tool to bring judgment on a people whose time had very much come. While still speaking under the hand of God, Elisha then ordered the Israelites to attack every fortified city and every choice city and to fell every good tree and to stop up all the springs of water and to ruin every good piece of land with stones. It was an absolute, utter decree of destruction on the land of of Moab, a land that was under God's curse. Now I should uh, stop and just address a quick concern. If you know your your Bible really well, um, you might know that, that Moses had actually forbidden this kind of thing. In Deuteronomy 20, he explicitly forbade cutting down trees and, and throwing stones all over the land to ruin it uh, because the trees are not guilty here. The people are. That was, that was Moses' point in Deuteronomy 20. Well, in this case, the only cl- conclusion that, that we can give is that God has the right to make exceptions for his own rules of warfare. Under normal circumstances, this was not to be done. They they weren't supposed to cut down trees and throw stones all over the land. But in this case, the land of Moab itself, so great was their sin, that the land of Moab itself was cursed because of it. It's really not that different from the way that God cursed the earth after Adam and Eve fell into sin. So God cursed the land of Moab because of the sins of the people within it. And that's what the Israelites then did. They went through the land. They destroyed it. They cut down the trees. They stopped up all the springs of water. They ruined every good piece of land with stones so that the fields turned out to be like the fields up here in, in Owen Sound filled with, with stones everywhere that destroy your, your, your farming equipment. And so the, the Moabites not only were, were destroyed, but their livelihood, their future was also put in, in jeopardy. And and the seriousness of this judgment should tell us something about the seriousness of Moab's sin. The Moabites were famous for their godlessness and their cruelty. And and the pinnacle of their godlessness was this practice that we see in the very last verse of child sacrifice. They would do this very often, sacrificing their their newborn children in the fire to, to their gods. And so God cursed this land with the heaviest curse that we find on any people in in all of the Old Testament. And He used the Israelites to carry this judgment out. They went through the land and completely ruined it, killing every Moabite that they encountered along the way. We can only imagine the horror for the Moabites on that day of judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, we want to see not only the perfect righteousness and majesty, of God, to bring judgment on a sin whose, who, on a people who, whose sin had reached its fullness, we also want to see by the same judgment how truly weighty and serious our sin is in God's eyes. It is a horrible judgment, but if we want to know our God rightly, we need to recognize in His eyes it is a horrible sin that they had committed. When they finally reached the city of, of Kir Hariseth, It was clear that that the Moabites were about to be exterminated forever. And the king of Moab committed the ultimate act of desperation. In an act of worship to their god Chemosh, he took his oldest son, we don't know how how old he was, possibly still a toddler, possibly older, and he hung him on the wall and he set him on fire. The next line in this verse is, is exceedingly difficult to interpret. The, the, the King James says, there, came, there was great indignation against Israel such that they departed and returned to their own land. Now, if that's how to interpret it, then, then we're left with, with two possibilities. Either we can say it's, it's the wrath or indignation of God or the indignation of Chemosh. Uh, if it's the wrath of God it makes this verse very difficult to interpret because then you're, you're left asking, why would God punish Israel for the sin that Moab had committed? Now that in itself shouldn't be a deal breaker for us. God does things that, that we don't understand. Sometimes we're just meant to, to stop and, and reflect and, and meditate. And so if that is what the text says, then we could accept that and, and uh, reflect on it and seek to learn from it. And it's also possible to interpret this as as the wrath of Chemosh. Uh, We know that behind every false god, there is a real demonic power. So it could be uh, that as well. However, I don't think either of those are the right way to interpret this verse. And I have two reasons. One is that it's very unusual that the text doesn't tell us the nature of this indignation. Uh, nowhere else in any historical narrative in, in the Bible do you find wrath or indignation just mentioned in the abstract uh, when it's talking about a specific event. That's not the way that, that history is written. It's always, uh, when you hear about God's wrath, it's always in specific manifestations. Fire from heaven or, or plagues or, or something like that or armies. Uh, the only time you, you ever read about just the, the abstract Wrath of God or indignation of God is when it's a future prophecy, you know, beware lest the wrath of God come upon you, something of that nature. But the other reason is that the Hebrews themselves did not understand this word to mean wrath. Uh, Here's how they understood it. First, the word against that you see there can also simply mean upon or within. And the difficult word is the one translated wrath. Usually it refers to the wrath of God, but not always, nor does it always even mean wrath. It can also mean something along the line of disgust, or loathing, or horror. And when this verse was interpreted by the Jews themselves, they understood it to mean horror and disgust that came upon the Israelites at witnessing what the king of Moab did. That's how the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, that's how they interpreted it. And that's also how the Jewish historian Josephus also interpreted it. uh, As not the wrath of God or the wrath of Chemosh, but the the horror that came upon the Israelites themselves when they witnessed what the king did. I think that's the best way to understand this verse. When the Israelites saw what the king of Moab did, to his son, they were so filled with shock and horror that they regretted the entire campaign and withdrew from the land. Remember, the whole campaign was all about getting tribute from Moab. It was all about those 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And I think when they saw what the king did, They realized that they were in way over their heads. This was far, far greater things were happening than simply the loss of tribute. And they wanted nothing more to do with the land of Moab. It was a land under God's curse. And they could see the depravity of the people that lived there. And so the Israelites decided to give up on the the tribute. Nobody needs that tribute anyway when, when these sorts of things are happening. And so, in other words, then, God allowed them, for a moment, to see the depravity and the, the ugliness and the horror of sin, the depth of evil that, that evil can become. And it so shocked them that they could go no further and they turned around and went home. Well, Sometimes, seeing another person's sin or another nation's sin can give us that appropriate feeling of revulsion and nausea, and remind us how detestable sin really is and what it becomes apart from God's grace. There, there are times when we witness such depravity that it, it shocks our consciences into being awake and causes us to flee back to God. In other words, God allows that to happen so that we recognize sin for what it really is. The sin of child sacrifice in Scripture is is recognized as the most extreme manifestation of, of godlessness. No sin, I say this very deliberately, no sin aroused God's wrath more in the Old Testament than the practice of child sacrifice. Uh, you can see this because every time the, the Israelites are warned about godlessness, the, the, this practice is given as the extreme manifestation, the, the worst extreme to which godlessness can go. So take Deuteronomy 12, verse 31. He says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in the way that these Canaanites, Canaanite nations do for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done to their gods for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. It was because of that kind of godlessness that God had declared that the, the, the people of Canaan, their sins had reached the brim and it was time for them to be exterminated by the people of Israel. And that should be a very sobering thought for us today in this country. Because if child sacrifice is the pinnacle of godlessness, if child sacrifice brings a nation to the point where its sins have reached the fullness, where God says that nation must be exterminated, then we should fear for our country as well. If this was true for Moab, what about Canada? They worshipped their gods. They, they sacrificed their children to Molech and Chemosh. We sacrifice ours in the hundreds of abortion mills around this country to the gods of money, careers, vacations, or, uh, or, or, or other, other gods, or freedom from responsibility. And sure, we don't do it on a wall for everyone to see, although it is becoming trendy even to brag about one's abortions. But it makes no difference whether it happens on a wall for everyone to see or in the womb where no one can see it or in sterilized abortion clinics where it's hidden from the rest of society. God sees the same thing. In God's eyes, it is one and the same sin. And that is Great reason for us as a nation to be afraid. If ISIS should invade us or if North Korea should get the bomb that they want and bomb us, it doesn't excuse their sin, but we as a nation would deserve it. We've reached the point where God would exterminate us as well. If that was true of the Canaanites and it was true of Moab, it is certainly true of us as well. Well, we ought to pray, all of us, for God's mercy on this country. Your, your personal opposition to abortion, and I trust that probably all of you are personally opposed to abortion, but your personal opposition does not make you any less a member of this country. And whenever it happens that God's judgment falls on a nation, the people of God within that nation share in that judgment, their children die as well. And so our prayers should always be like the prayers of, of Daniel repenting on behalf of his nation, or the prayers of Nehemiah crying out for God's mercy on his nation, though he may not have shared in the same guilt to the same degree, nonetheless crying out that God would have mercy. Because there are ways we recognize that we could have done more to prevent our nation from becoming the way it is. Oh, When Israel witnessed the sin of Moab, it filled them with such horror and loathing that they wanted nothing more to do with that accursed people. They thought they can keep their 100,000 lambs and and their their wool of 100,000 rams. The Israelites saw what sin becomes apart from God's grace and it brought them to perspective. Some things are far, far more consequential than the stupid economy, which is all that they were worried about. And in our politics, we should keep that in mind as well. It does no good to have a thriving economy if we are a nation that is under God's judgment. Well, in some ways, verse 27 is a warning and a foreshadowing to Israel because the reality is that Israel's horror at witnessing this sin would later become a testimony against them because they would themselves end up falling into the same level of depravity. It's only a, a dozen chapters later, only a century later, that this is where we find Israel practicing these same things. Well, brothers and sisters, you need to know Christ is the only answer to such sin. He is the only hope for our nation, and He is the only hope for mankind whose sin also tends in the same direction. Christ came willingly to bear the guilt of a nation that He Himself was not guilty for, to bear their sin and the sin of the entire human race, so that there could be mercy under God's righteous judgment. Human history can and will only ever go in two directions. We are either renewed and sanctified through Christ, or we as a nation will descend into this kind of evil. We've seen it as recently in the Holocaust. And the American soldiers and the Canadian soldiers, when they came into Germany, had much the same reaction as the Israelites did here before the king of Moab. When they saw the concentration camps, their reasons for entering the war paled in comparison, and they walked away speechless at the, the level of, of depravity to which the sin of Germany had reached. And we've seen it already now in our day, too in the abortion mills around this country. Oh, brothers and sisters, fall on your knees and plead with God, I don't have much hope for this nation. And yet, we can cry out to God and He may yet spare this nation. And recognize in this chapter the great majesty of God who never calls evil anything but evil, who never has anything to do with it and never excuses it, who will cast it into hell forever where it belongs and recognize also the absolute hideousness of sin, your sin, my sin, the sin that dwells within us, the things that you and I would be capable of doing if God did not hold us back. And let the sight of that sin cause you as it causes me to flee back to our God, to plead for His mercy and to find grace and forgiveness through Christ. Amen.